we come to the appointed hour when the Lord gives us the opportunity to hear the Word of God. And I want to invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. It seems that within the 20th and now the 21st centuries, discussion and debate about the ministry of the Holy Spirit has been largely focused upon His dispensing to the church of Jesus Christ those supernatural gifts of the more showy variety. For instance, the gift of tongues, the interpretation of tongues, miracles, healing, and the like. What I find interesting, however, is the lack of discussion in the church today about the actual theological implications of the Spirit's ministry. It seems to me that in the midst of these discussions and debates about the gifts of the Spirit, we've largely undersold the greater and broader theological teachings which Scripture gives us about the Spirit of God. And when you talk about those passages which give explicit teaching regarding both the theological and therefore practical implications of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, one needs look no further than Romans chapter 8 for this kind of teaching. In Romans 8, as I told you last Lord's Day, we find tremendous truths regarding the theology of the Holy Spirit and His ministry in the body of Christ. Listen to Romans 8 and see if you can discern various aspects of the theology of the Spirit and the church's role in living in the Spirit. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors 
not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, but who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers." And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword... As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, 
nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Isn't it wonderful to simply hear the reading of Scripture? Indeed, regarding the book of Romans, one of the old saints in the line of those who loved this old book and wanted it to be in his heart regularly, asked for his servants to read the book of Romans to him once every week of his life. This is a tremendous opportunity that we all share, that God is giving us in His gracious providence the opportunity to learn from the book of Romans and to be applying the book of Romans in our own life. Last Lord's Day, I taught you that there is contained within Romans 8, 1 to 17, several of what we call spirit life principles, spirit with a capital S. I call them spirit life principles because they are theological truths about the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church, and they are absolutely vital as it pertains your understanding of the Christian walk that you are on and that I am on as well. And if you were with us last time, I spoke of the first two Holy Spirit life principles from Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. Do you remember what they were? The first one was this. Spirit life principle number one. There is no condemnation from sin for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. There's no condemnation from sin. Not guilty. No condemning power of God. No judgment for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's what Romans 8 verses 1 and 2 tells us. I indicated to you last time that the theological basis of the fact that we stand righteous in God's sight, having been declared not guilty of all of our sins, and that there is therefore no condemnation of us by God, the very basis of such is both the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and what the Holy Spirit did when He formed the body of Christ at Pentecost, creating for believers a completely new life of existence. I say this because Paul says that very thing in Romans 8.2. Look at it. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Paul says there that we are free in Christ Jesus. The in Christ Jesus part is his shorthand language to say that we are set free from our sin and from the hopelessness of perfect law keeping by virtue of the death of Jesus Christ upon the cross. That's what he means by that. But notice also what, he's, what he is theologically saying when he speaks of the Holy Spirit there. He speaks of the law of the Spirit of life. And when he does, he speaks of a law or a principle of life that the Holy Spirit brings to us when he also, being a member of the Trinity, sets us free, Paul says, from the law of sin and death. And you ask, when did that happen? 
Well, it happened, of course, through Christ's death on the cross, and it happened at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit formed the body of Christ, placing all believers into it so that ultimately when we ourselves come to the place where we personally place our own faith in Christ, our trust in Him, we become partakers of the Holy Spirit's very life. The life of the Spirit. That's why we call it a Spirit life principle. And oh, beloved, both those truths, the death of Christ and the life of the Spirit are tremendously practical and are to be understood and then lived out in our life. And of course, I said, the practical application of that spirit life principle number one is this. Are you in Christ Jesus? Are you in Him? Do you have that life of the Spirit in your soul? Is the life of God in the soul of yourself? Is it there? We talked also last time about spirit life principle number two. Look at it with me in verses 3 and 4. There Paul says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin He condemns sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit." We said that principle that is taught in those two verses is this. Christ's condemnation by God the Father provides the very basis for our righteous law-keeping in the Spirit. Do you realize, as I taught you last time, that as Paul delves further into how the sacrifice of Christ on the cross and our life in the Holy Spirit are intertwined, He says in verse 3 that what God did, which the law weakened by our flesh could not do, was to send His own very Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, in the likeness of our own humanity. Christ came to this earth in the form of a man, with the propensities of a man, save sin died upon the cross as a substitutionary atonement for the sins of everyone who would ever believe. But notice, notice what the purpose clause says there in verse 4. And here it, it's yet again intertwined with the crucial ministry of the Holy Spirit in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Do you see that here? Christ and the Spirit. Christ and the Spirit. Christ and the Spirit. Christ's death and the Holy Spirit's life. These are great truths, beloved. And I said to you last time, you should realize that any good works, any righteous requirement that God commands you to obey, any act of faithfulness you perform as a Christian is based upon both the cross of Christ, that's verse 3, and verse 4, because we walk as Christians according to the dictates of the Holy Spirit and His will, and we're not dictated by the living according to the flesh as others We're enabled to see the very righteous requirements of the law. Imagine that. The very righteous requirements of God's holy law. 
Paul says, might be fulfilled in us because we walk according to the Spirit. Our daily life, walking a step-by-step daily existence in the power of the living Holy Spirit. In other words, our justification is based upon our having been declared not guilty by Christ's atoning sacrifice, and our sanctification is given to us because the Holy Spirit infuses into us the very power. Did you hear it in that song? His power in my power. Did you hear that? It's the power of the Spirit of God infusing into me the very power so that I might live in power the Christian life. Boy, what a thought. God has not only chosen to change our status from fleshy people to Spirit-led people by virtue of the cross of Jesus Christ, and He's also changed our very character because we now don't walk according to the flesh, but we walk according to to the Holy Spirit, to His realm, His life, His Word, His love, His grace. What a spirit life principle. And there's a third. There's a third. And to try as I might, I couldn't get past the third. Verses 5 to 8. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, Paul says, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh, Paul declaratively says, cannot please God. Very, very simple spirit life principle. Christians have their minds set on the things of the Holy Spirit. Christians have their minds by the very definition of what a Christian is. Their minds set on the things of the Spirit of God. That's just such a really simple principle to see from Scripture, but it leaps to me off the page. If you have your mind set on the things of this world, the flesh, Paul calls it, the carnal mind, the non-Christian mind, the unsaved mind, the unregenerate mind, if you have your mind set on the things of this world, those things, by the way, that the Apostle John declares in 1 John 2, 15-17, listen to it, do not love the things of the world, excuse me, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Do you hear that categorical language? you love the things of the world, if you're immersed in the things of the world, if you love it, if you lust for it, if you're groping after it, the love of the Father is not in you. 
John says, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride, pride in possessions, is not from the Father but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. If you have your mind set, if you have your love set on the things of the world, you are not Christ's. You don't have your mind set on the things of the Spirit. And you notice those three categorical areas, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, the pride in possessions. That's as old as the Garden of Eden. Eve took that fruit because the Bible says it looked good to the eyes It looked good to her flesh and she thought it would be desirable for me to take it to make me wise. It's the oldest game in the book. And it's been repeating itself over and over and over since the beginning of time. If you love the things of the world, then you can't possibly be living according to the Spirit. That's Paul's point right here. If you love the world more than you love the Holy Spirit, then you're not one of Christ's own. Why? Because the the law of the Spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. You see, you don't have to live that way anymore. You You don't have to go around following after all of these lusts and desires of your heart, because that's formerly a part of you. You want to get rid of it. You want to distance yourself from it. And by the way, did you notice that there are two sets which Paul describes here in Romans 8, 1-11? Look down with me at your Bibles. There are those who are, according to verse 2, set free from the law of sin and death, And there are likewise those who have their minds set on the things of the Spirit. You see those two sets? Do you have your your mind set on the things of the Spirit? Well, if you do, it's only because you've been set free from the law of sin and death. Again, as I said last time, both the work of Christ upon the cross and the sovereign Spirit to whom we were singing this morning causes us to have our minds upon Him. That's a package deal. It's a twin reality. You can't have Christ without the Holy Spirit. You can't have the Holy Spirit without Christ. And when Paul is speaking here of the choice to set your mind upon the Spirit, it's really the choice that God has made for you. It doesn't obviate your responsibility, but notice this. We must be freed from the law of sin and death. We don't do that on our own. God does that for us. He does that through Christ's cross, His initiative, what He did on our behalf. And the Holy Spirit is the one who must regenerate our hearts. He must produce in us divine life. And when He produces in us divine life, then we respond to the dictates of the commands of the Holy Spirit. And the dictates of the command of the Holy Spirit at that very moment is believe on Christ. 
Believe that Christ Jesus died for you, a sinner. That's, that's what's happening here in Romans 8. You know what he's doing really here in Romans 8? He's talking about two distinct categories of human beings. Those who set their minds on the things of the flesh, that's a non-Christian, it's an unsaved person, and those who are setting their minds on the things of the Spirit. These are, these are categories here. It isn't Paul saying, well, there are those who set their minds on the things of the Spirit, and they are fleshy. Can't happen. He's talking about two distinct, absolutely distinct categories Those who are in the realm of the flesh, who do the things of the flesh, who love the things of the world, and those who love the Spirit, who want to follow the Spirit, who want to obey the dictates of the Spirit, and who are thus changed by the Holy Spirit. Paul isn't describing non-Christians who sometimes look like they're doing righteous deeds 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 which sometimes appear to look as though they're coming from the Holy Spirit. It may look like like that, but it isn't. It isn't truly coming from God. No, Paul isn't talking here about that. He's trying to teach the Romans that there are only two mindsets in the world. And if you don't receive anything else, else from this message, receive this. Only two mindsets in the world. Mindset of the flesh. Mindset of the Spirit. Only two. Those totally given over to the things of the flesh. Carnal. God-hating. Christ-rejecting. Holy Spirit-denying pagans who refuse to live according to God's law. And the other category. Those who are totally given over to the things of the Spirit. Spiritual. God-loving. Christ-receiving Holy Spirit affirming believers who delight in the law of God. Those are the two categories. There isn't any middle ground, isn't any third. You say, wait a minute. You've been talking about this idea of a mindset. But doesn't Colossians chapter 3 also command even true believers not to have a mindset on the things of the flesh? Yes, it does. Turn over to Colossians chapter 3. I don't want anybody to be confused. Colossians chapter 3 does speak of this, verses 1 to 4, it does speak of a mindset, does appear initially that it's speaking of Christians not having a mindset on the things of the earth or the things of the flesh. You say, seems to me possibly to be a contradiction, but it really isn't. At first glance, doesn't seem to be categorical here. Well, here's the answer. Colossians is giving us a conditional verse in verse 1. Notice it. If, very important, two letters, very important. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. Notice that word if. It's a conditional sentence. In the Greek text, Paul is saying it like this, If then, and I trust this is true about you, you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. If it's true of you, notice he does the same thing in Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. 
And you, he says, who once were alienated and hostile in mind. That's a word we'll come to in Romans 8. Hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. He's talking about all of those things that are characteristically, categorically true of a Christian. Categorically, it's true of a Christian that they were once alienated, once hostile in mind, once doing evil deeds. It characterized their whole life. He's now reconciled you. You've come into the life of the Spirit in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. But notice the first word of verse 23. If, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. You see, if, and I trust it's true of you, I can say that today to our congregation, Jesus Christ is alive and He is in you if you continue in the faith. If it can be truly manifest about you. In other words, He's commanding the Colossians to make their profession match their possession. That's what he's saying. Notice he says in verse 2 of Colossians 3, set your mind on things that are above. Sounds a lot like Romans 8, set your mind on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And that's exactly what Paul does in Romans 8, 9. Set your minds, but notice verse 9 of Romans 8. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. If it's true, if it's true about you, and boy, I like that preaching. I like that kind of preaching. It doesn't make the assumption that every single person within the hearing of the preacher ought to rest on their laurels regarding Christ. Ask yourself the question in your heart right now, do I know Christ? Is this true of me? Can I say yes to the if conditional clause? Is that true of me? Is that a part of my life? You see, Colossians 3 and Romans 8 can be wonderfully harmonized. It's just approaching really the same subject from a couple of different angles, but each with that conditional idea, if, if, if. I've told you before that the key to understanding some of these passages is to understand that indicative imperative. The indicative is this is a statement of fact. Generally, not always, but generally speaking, that idea is something that is a statement of fact which is true about you as a Christian. It is indicative of you that you are this way. But... Don't lose sight of the imperative. The imperative is because this is true of you or since this is true of you, because this is a statement of fact about you as a Christian, then obey in this way. That's an imperative. God doesn't give us as believers commands that He does not first ground, provide the basis for who we are in Christ. But since you're in Christ, Obey this way. That's what he's saying. And in fact, in Colossians 3, we have that very thing. Notice it. Verse 3, Colossians 3. For you have died, 
and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's indicative. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. It's a statement of fact. Every single Christian, bonafide Christian, true Christian, when Christ, who is your very life, when He appears, then you'll also, glory to God, appear with Him in His glorious second coming. And on the basis of that very statement of fact, what does he say in verse 5? Kill. Put to death. Put off, therefore, what is remaining sin in you. What is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. You want Him to come in His second coming glory with you as His saint, not with the judgment of the wrath of God coming upon you. He says, even in verse 7, In these things you too once walked, see, when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Live out this sanctification of your life. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another, seeing that you have put off. You've already done it. Put off the old man with its practices. And you've already put on the new man, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against anyone, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. See, these are, these are all commands. Above all, put on love. Let the peace of Christ, verse 15, rule in your hearts. Be thankful. All these are commands. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teaching, admonishing, singing. Whatever you do, verse 17, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Commands. Based upon what? What's true about you? That you're really a Christian. You might be sitting here this morning and saying, you know, I've tried these things. I mean, I've tried to love I've tried to be thankful. I've tried to forgive. I've tried to be in harmony. I've tried not to be immoral and impure with evil desires and covetous. I've tried not to have anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk. I've tried not to lie to one another, but I, I can't do it. It's, it's beyond me. I, I can't respond. I, I, I don't... I don't find the power. Well, it may very well be because the Spirit of God does not dwell in you. The Spirit of power. His power in my power. I don't, I don't have it. That's why Paul is saying, if this is true of you, Colossians, then seek the things that are above. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. This is... This is a, a statement of fact with a command because of the very basis of who you are in Christ. And if you are in Christ, you then know what it means to love for the first time. To not have anger in your soul. To not to want to have vengeance against somebody who's harmed you. Maybe that might be the, the most glorious one of all that you are able now, because of the Spirit of God dwelling in you, 
to forgive somebody who's hurt you deeply. How is that possible? I've sat with people before and encouraged them to forgive, even some within our own fellowship, and said, so-and-so's hurt you. They've sought forgiveness from you. I've even had a situation that I'm thinking of in my mind where that very person was in the room and I was, as it were, a guide to have both of them seek forgiveness and grant forgiveness because of the love of Jesus Christ in forgiving them, or so it seemed. And when I ask one of them, seek forgiveness of the other, that you've hurt them, that you've wronged them, and that person eagerly did so, I know that I've hurt you deeply, and I'm grieved about that, and I want you to forgive me. I want you to to please forgive me for what I've done against you. It was wrong. It was heinous. It was vile. And I see now in ways that I didn't see before. The response of the other person when I said, are you willing to forgive? They said, no. No, I won't. The hurt is too deep. The wound is too much. And I said, too much to be forgiven by Christ? Did Christ not forgive you of all your wounds against Him? Did He not forgive you for the vile and wretched ways you responded to Him and His creation, to Him and His laws? I won't forgive. And to this day, I have no knowledge that any forgiveness has ever been granted. And that's why Jesus speaks so pointedly in Matthew's Gospel that says, If you do not forgive men, then my Heavenly Father will not forgive you. They stand as an unforgiven person. And masquerading as a Christian, believing somehow that the Word of God is not to be followed, that they can choose not to forgive, but believe themselves to be forgiven. How can... How can one person do it and another does not? It's because the Spirit of God dwells in one who says, I know how much I've been forgiven and I know how much I need to forgive. And because of Christ's forgiveness, I do. I run to it. Because could I conceive in my mind that when Jesus Christ was on that cross... He wasn't, as it were, running to forgive me. Oh yes, I run to it. And when I know that I've wronged someone else, especially those in the body, my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, I run. I'm eager. 2 Corinthians 7, I I want to be avenging the wrong that I've done. That's how you can do it. And that's what Paul is saying whether it's Colossians 3 or Romans 8, you can turn back to Romans 8 because that's the very thing that he says here. He really gives us in verses 6 to 8 four manifestations which characterize this person who has his mind set on the flesh. 
Because that's probably a very honest question. Maybe you are asking that very question yourself. All right, if, if that's true of me, that I have my mind set on the flesh, if I'm given over to that, if that characterizes my life, if that's the category I find myself, what does it look like? How can I know? Can I know with a level of certainty whether or not my mind is really set on the flesh? Yes, you can. Four manifestations of it. Look at verses 6 to 8. To set the mind on the flesh is death. That's one. Verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. That's two. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. That's three. And verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's four. Look at your life. What do you see? Death. You say, what kind of death? Spiritual death and eternal death. That's what he's referring to. Spiritual death. You're dead in your sins. And because you're dead in your sins, you're headed for an eternal death. A forever kind of death. A death of judgment. And why is that? Well, verse 7, for, for the mind, there's our connector word, here's the explanation of it, for the mind that is set on the flesh, that is the mind that is headed for death and that is dead right now, it's hostile to God. The death is because of the hostility. You're hostile to God. And this hostility is because the flesh doesn't want to submit to God. You see the, the links between those four? And the reason there is a life lacking submission is because of an inability to do so. And this inability also manifests itself in a displeasing of God. That's how you can define a mindset on the flesh. It's a death-deserving relationship between you and God. And it is because there is hostility between you and God. Hostility means enmity, conflict, friction. That's why James 4.4 says it this way, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity, hostility with God? That's 1 John 2. 15-17, Do not love the world, nor the things of the world or in the world. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of possessions, pride of life, boastfulness. The love of the world means that you're automatically going to be in hostility with God because He's the opposite of those things. And if He's opposite of those things, then that means you're on the other side of Him. That means you're in conflict with Him, hostility with Him, enmity with Him. And what is the underlying manifestation of this death-deserving hostility toward God? Because the mindset on the flesh simply will not submit to God. And that's what people do. That's what people say. I just won't do it. I refuse to submit to a God who... And then they normally will come up with their own conception, not a biblical one, for who God is. I just can't submit to God because of all the evil in the world. Isn't it interesting how people will say something like that but will not even address the evil of their own heart? I say first things first. If a person were on a relentless pursuit to discover the evil first of their own heart, 
they probably would not be asking the second question. New vistas of thought would be permeating their souls because they would see how wicked they themselves are in their heart of hearts. Will not submit to God. And then the ugly, heinous coup de gras. Because the mindset on the flesh cannot please God. Cannot. Cannot do it. A person's flesh, his carnal mind, his unsaved, unregenerate mind absolutely cannot submit to God's law and he cannot please God. That's why I said earlier that no amount of non-Christian philanthropy No desire of fleshly service, not one whit of carnal practices are able to please God. None. This is also why we cannot capitulate as evangelicals to the idea that there are those outside the Christian faith who are also simply trying to find their own ways to God and every path of God, if it is sincere, is pleasing to Him. That's a lie. It's not true. Not all paths lead to God. Not all sincerity leads to God. This passage says that if you're not walking according to the Holy Spirit, if you're in fact walking according to the dictates of the flesh, the anti-Christian mind, regardless of what label a person wears, Buddhist, Hindu, Muslim, even all those like the Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and also Roman Catholics and others who claim to be Christians but who are setting their minds on the things of the flesh and even those pew-sitters within evangelical churches but who are secretly indulging in the flesh because they are of the flesh cannot please the God of the Bible. They are not following the God of Romans can't please God. Now someone may say here, but, but how can God hold someone responsible for something they did not have the ability to do? You just quoted the verse yourself. They, they cannot please God. That, that sounds like inability. Will God condemn those who do not have the ability to please God? That's another one of those questions that people ask. What's the answer? Well, the answer is that he's not talking about a physical inability here. He's talking about a moral one. A moral inability. Those who cannot please God are in fact said to be also hostile to God. Apparently, the Apostle Paul doesn't have any problem in the same verse. Talking about someone who is both hostile to God and is unable to please God. Apparently, he doesn't have a problem with saying that in the same verse. Don't listen to anyone who tries to foist the idea upon you that the reason people are hostile and unsubmissive to God is because God is not pleased with them. It's not because He isn't pleased with them. No, God is not pleased with them and they are not pleased with God because they're hostile and unsubmissive to God. That's the issue. That's what's going on. And they're hostile and unsubmissive to God precisely because they are by nature desirous of pleasing only themselves and therefore God takes no delight in them. Don't miss it. Men aren't sinners because they sin. They sin because they are sinners. 
It's a major point. Don't lose sight of that. That'll answer your question about this inability issue. It's a moral inability in what sense? People are hostile to God. They don't please God because they cannot please God because they're hostile to God. They're hostile to God. Pelagius of old wanted to say, but there's freedom of the will. John Calvin was far better, far more biblical when he wrote this, Let the Christian heart, therefore, drive far from itself the non-Christian philosophy of the freedom of the will and let every one of us acknowledge himself to be as in reality he is the servant of sin that he may be freed by the grace of Christ and set at liberty. You see, when you come to the realization that you are in bondage to sin, not the freedom of your will, the freedom of the will is a satanic ploy to get you to continue to have your mindset on the flesh. Because if a person believes they have the freedom to get in Christ, they might at some point have the arbitrary freedom to come out of Christ. Or at least to have whatever they want, to do whatever they want, to live however they want. They're not submissive to God, you see, because a mindset on the Spirit, Paul says, is life and peace. And that because we've been freed from our sin. You know what this is? This is a doctrine This may very well be, along with other truths like this, the most pride-crushing doctrines in all of Scripture. It just, just shows us that our wills aren't free to choose. Our wills are bound in the law of sin and death. And we need to be freed. And the dilemma is we cannot do it on our own. And that's why Paul says here, Romans 8, 3, by sending His own Son, He took the initiative in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin He condemned sin in the flesh. God did it. So I ask you today, we're closing our time. Are you hostile to God? Are you hostile? Are you in a death-deserving relationship with God? Do you continue in your heart to refuse to submit to God? If you do, then by all means do not live under the false impression that you're pleasing to God. You're not pleasing to God. You cannot please God. You must submit to God. You must see your true spiritual condition and fall on your face in true humble submission to Him, thanking Him for the initiative in bringing you to this freedom of the life of the Spirit from the law of sin and death. Isn't that truly what your heart is saying you desire right now? Will you continue to flaunt your flesh? Whatever flaunting that may be. But God... What about my service? What about my financial giving? What about my helping other people? What about my prayers? What about my church attendance? What about my good life? What about my worship? Are you going to condemn me for these things? And to you, what does the Lord reply? 
There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, oh how we thank You that it was said of Jesus Christ Himself in Romans 15, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you, God, fell on me. The reproaching sins against God the Father were borne by Christ. Because he says they fell on him. That's why we should please our neighbor, not just ourselves, because Christ's motive was not to please himself, but to take upon himself our reproaches. Do you want death or life? Oh, the manifesting reality of the spirit life is, according to Paul, life and peace. Do you want eternal life? Do you want peace with God? No conflict, no enmity, no hostility, no condemnation. And you can have that life in the, in the fullness of life that He grants here and in the life hereafter. Life now in the Spirit, living in the Spirit. Eternal life in the Spirit. Peace and the abundance of the absence of conflict with God. Declared righteous. If that's what you desire, I pray that you will, in your heart right now, say, yes, I believe in Christ. Christ, save me. Grant me grace. I thought I was free. I now know I'm in bondage. I look at my life and I, I can't get away from my sin. I need a sin bearer. I need a substitute. I need a Savior. Save me, Christ. Love me. Give me that life in the Spirit. Oh, for you who already possess that kind of life, are you rejoicing in sins forgiven and no condemnation? Understand your status and understand your daily life in the Spirit. Walk in that way. Oh, Father, thank You for visiting us here in power, in wisdom, in salvation, and in sanctification. We praise You in His name. Amen.